following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. And good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today on Behind the Lines on Turtle X Community Radio 98.3 FM and Canberra. And that was the Hungry House Blues by Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger. Quite a relevant topic to what we're going to be chatting about this morning. So this week, continuing with our federal election series, we are welcoming with us live in studio Greens candidate for Canberra, Tim Hollow. We're also hoping that our federal member for Canberra, Alicia Payne, will be able to be joined joining us live via phone for the first part of the show. Alicia's just been held up at the moment, so hopefully we'll be able to patch her in shortly. Anyway, first of all, we'd like to uh, welcome Tim to the show. We've had you on the show before. It's great to have you back in studio, Tim. Thanks, Zena and Scotty. Lovely to be here. Wonderful. So how are you holding up with all the campaigning going on there? It's great. It's fun. I really like it. You know, I've been out and about door knocking, well, I mean, for years really. But, um, you know, since uh, since lockdown ended pretty much with a little break over, over the heat of summer. And, yeah, I, I get a kick out of it. I just love talking to people um, about, you know, ideas and about politics and just most of the conversations are just always so interesting and so so uplifting. I come away from, you know, a session out on the streets campaigning feeling uplifted about the state of the world, actually. It's the best way to deal with the <laughs> with the, the terror, <laughs> frankly. Well, I love there's a story that you shared that um, you were chatting to a gentleman in your door knocking who had become quite despondent mm. about the whole voting process and elections and felt that nothing he did was going to change anything for the better. Mm. And after speaking to you, he had a reinvigorated sense of hope and that things could change with our vote. Yeah, and that and that guy, uh, mm. the one that you're referring to, I think actually popped into our office a little while later um, and picked up a yard sign to, to stick in outside his, his house. So, you know, it's really... Even last night I had a similar one actually. I was I was door knocking in Turner and chatted to a young woman who was just really distraught about the state of the world and you know we talked it over for a while and you know about the idea that there there is a groundswell at the moment to move away from the two-party system and mm. and get other voices into the parliament who are actually going to take the climate crisis seriously. Um, and you know those conversations are how how we how we build hope. You know, hopes a hopes a tricky idea in in politics. You know, there's there's a lot of conversation around how just telling people to have hope is is in some ways quite disempowering. Um, but I think what's more disempowering actually is telling people that there isn't any hope. Um, and so to me, it's all about activity. It's all about going and having these conversations. And, and it's amazing how many of them I have with people who are kind of either just really kind of, you know, pissed off about the state of politics, if I can use that language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, having the conversation can kind of lift it up a little bit and kind of give them this idea that, you know, things can change for the better. They really can. Um, or just absolutely, you know, terrified about the state of the world and really worried about their future, particularly young people. Um, and, yeah, talking about it actually helps people find the path to hope. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've tried to do in our election series is humanise our candidates and, you know, getting to know you as a person, not just a politician, has been mm. a big part of that. And I imagine door knocking is probably, mm. that's probably the closest you're going to get to someone getting to know you and get a sense of who you are and also have um, a connection of whether or not you share values and whether yeah. or not that's going to be the right choice for them at the polls. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's great the way 
the way you can have those just one-on-one -on -one conversations where people kind of come away and go, well, look, thank you. Thank you for introducing yourself and for coming around and appreciate that. And 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 even very much people who, who aren't necessarily going to vote for me also appreciate it and also kind of go, you know, it's really, it's really good mm -hmm. that you're coming around and chatting to people and that we do get this opportunity to meet you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in a sense having been around the traps for quite a while in Canberra that a lot of people mm -hmm. do know me, in fact, from all sorts of different places, mm -hmm. whether it's the Buy Nothing groups or the music scene or, you know, on the ground climate campaigning, whatever it is. Um, a lot of people do know me. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things actually about this campaign is um, having my email address out there um, in the public arena, for the first time, people are actually deliberately finding me and just sending me emails, um, just asking me questions, um, you know, cold call, basically, mm -hmm. um, asking me, where do you stand on this or that? Um, and, you know, that's a really interesting way of doing it too. I think people are quite open, interested in, in that, you know. Well, I think for a lot of us in Canberra, we're so used to the core flute war. Right? Yeah. You know, is that the closest you're going to get to a candidate is the core <laughs> flute? It looks like I might have Alicia calling in, so I'm just going to get Scotty to take over yeah. chatting with Tim there for a minute. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so what? how did you get to be like this, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting question. Um, yeah, I have... Um, I have kind of quite a broad background, I guess, and you know a whole lot of a whole lot of inputs into into how I became who I am. Um, I grew up, you know, kind of wanting to be um, wanting to be David Attenborough. Frankly, I grew up as a as a kid just absolutely in love with the natural world and feeling you know feeling like there would be nothing better than spending a whole lot of my time in the natural world. Did a lot of, was lucky enough to get to do a lot of bushwalking and, um, and kayaking and rock climbing and stuff as a kid. Um, and it was really kind of in my, in my mid high school years around about the time of the, um, of the Rio earth summit, um, in 1992, when I started to come to realize that loving the natural world meant that I was, probably going to end up dedicating my life to working to protect it because of the threats that it was under. Um, so that was a huge influence on me. Another really, really big influence on, on, on me and my politics is that both my parents came here as refugees and my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Um, and I grew up with this incredible, incredibly deep sense of, of two things from that. One is that, um, you know, the privilege that I have in this country is actually a very fragile privilege because my grandparents were privileged where they were as Jews in Europe in the 1930s until that privilege was ripped away. Um, and so that sense that it is it is the duty of those of us with privilege to use it to make everybody safe and none of us is truly safe until we are all safe that I grew up with very deeply. The other thing from that is particularly the stories that, that my paternal grandmother told about how ordinary people do absolutely extraordinary things to help others and it is generally the people in power who you need to be particularly wary and scared of. Mm -hmm. um, and those, yeah, those things really kind of deeply influenced who I, who I am as a, as a person and, and, and how my politics developed. I mm. um, just want to let our listeners know we do have Alicia joining us via phone now, so Federal Member for Canberra. Alicia Payne, welcome to the conversation. 
Uh, thank you. Good good morning. And I'm, I'm terribly sorry to have been a, a bit late this morning. Sorry. No, no, it's all good. <laughs> I think Tim just got a bit of a jump on you there with a five <laughs> minutes of extra talk time. Um, so all we've done is just chat a little bit about uh, introduction of um, who you are as a person, not just a politician. Um, Tim's just given us some background on his family and why he's running. And perhaps, Alicia, you know, I know you are the in- incumbent and we've all had a chance to get to know you during your last term. But perhaps you could give us a little bit of a sense of Alicia the person. I know you're a long-time Canberra resident and you've called Canberra home, I think, your whole life. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Um, apart from I did university up in Sydney. Um, but other than that, um, I have uh, lived in Canberra and I love it. It's such a wonderful place, um, both in terms of the community here, so such a progressive and caring community, but also a beautiful city to live in, um, beautiful natural environment, and I'm really um, pleased to call it home. So um, uh, a little bit about me and why I um, went into politics. I've um, always been very passionate about social justice and particularly addressing poverty and inequality. And throughout my career before politics, I was like that has been my career aim and being a Labor politician is just part of that. I worked as a, as a researcher at, at NATSEM at the University of Canberra where I was doing a lot of uh, work on analysing poverty and inequality and also the impact of policies like tax policies and social security policies on households um, and how income is distributed. And after that, I worked at Treasury in those areas as well and then later for um, for Labor shadow ministers and ministers, including uh, Bill Shorten as opposition leader and Jenny Macklin uh, as the social services shadow. And throughout all that time as well, I've always uh, volunteered with people experiencing disadvantage, um, primarily in sort of drop-in centres, both here in, uh, both in Sydney and then here at uh, the Early Morning Centre in Civic. And then I was on the board of the Belconnen Community Service, because I've always wanted to just approach it in that holistic way, both on the policy side and on the the hands-on side, and also really understand what um, the issues are on the ground and what people are going through. Mm. And so in the last three years, as the member for Canberra, it's been the greatest privilege of my life, and I've been able to talk to so many Canberrans across all walks of life and hear about the things that they're doing. There's so many wonderful things going on here in Canberra. Um, And also, though, to hear about the need in Canberra. And this is something that um, I think Canberra, you know, as we know, is a bit of a national sport of Canberra bashing. And I think a really important role for the members of Canberra is building that profile of Canberra and the fact that we have a genuine community here with genuine need. Uh, it's a you know a city with relatively high incomes and low in unemployment, which makes it a really difficult place to be poor. And there are many people doing amazing work um, in that sphere, in the not-for-profit and volunteer space. We have an incredible business community that really punch above their weight for a small city, um, even on the international stage. And obviously, they've had a horror two years between three years between bushfires, pandemic, um, and recovering from that. And that is something as well that in the parliament, I don't know that that message mm-hmm. that we have this uh, these struggles is is in there. And of course, we have a special role as the nation's capital. Um, you know, we have our national institutions, and I really want to see 
uh, our, our nation take pride in Canberra. I want it to be a place that people want to come and visit and see just how wonderful it is for themselves. So for the last three years, those have been, um, you know, some of the things that I've been able to do as a member for Canberra and, of course, stand up on the issues that Canberrans mm-hmm. care about, which, uh, as I mentioned, we're a very progressive and altruistic community. So issues like climate change, social justice... Uh, all of these things are really important to Canberrans and they're important to me and I've had the absolute um, pride and privilege to stand up on those issues for the last three years and really hope mm. to continue. Wonderful. Now, I know we've had you on X before and I think most recently it was around what was happening with the Centrelink office in Braddon. So I think this is a great segue into you and Tim having a bit of a chat around some of your social justice priorities and some of the things that um, you were hoping to implement if you're re-elected and Tim is elected. So perhaps we could touch on uh, perhaps the first thing you mentioned, which was climate issues like we've had a situation in Canberra where you know even though we weren't at risk of being burnt out ourselves the Magi Park being the closest um, we certainly were exposed to you know the smoke and the air pollution and very very empathetic of what was happening to our neighbours on the coast and I did hear from many people that lived in bushfire affected areas on the coast that they were no longer Canberra bashing they saw Canberra as actually a great helping hand and support through that very very difficult period so perhaps um, Tim you might like to uh, pick up on that we can chat about um, you know what you're hoping to implement with environmental policies in you know hopefully preventing um, uh, you know a mega disaster like this ever happening again and then Alicia perhaps you could chime in with um, how Labor is going to work with that. Absolutely um, and good morning Alicia. Um, good morning Tim. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah look I hear more than anything else in campaigning in this city real concern about the climate crisis. Um, it is it is the number one issue that is raised with me, um, and it is for me the thing that I've been dedicating my life to over the last twenty years or so in all sorts of different ways. Um, and it's it, it is incredibly crucial that we act as fast as we possibly can on this crisis. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change handed down the last part of its um, sixth assessment report, which essentially gave us three years to turn around, three years to start dramatically reducing our pollution from fossil fuels. Um, And that three years happens to be, of course, the next term of federal parliament that we need to actually do that in. Um, And that is more than anything else why I am running for parliament, because we desperately need, firstly, to get rid of this awful, awful, destructive, vandalising government who are deliberately kind of thumbing their nose at the science and thumbing their nose at at the deep concern um, in, in the population and you know, gung-ho increasing the fossil fuel industry. But we need more than that because while Labor is undoubtedly better than this government and, of course, we want to see a change of government, unfortunately, too often, Labor is still backing the expansion of the fossil fuel industry and not really coming to terms with the fact that we need to phase it out. Just the other day, we had um, the leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese, confirm that, yeah, look, coal is part of our energy mix and and it is now and therefore it kind of will have to be for quite some time to come. And that's not good enough. What we've seen here in the ACT is 
over now 12, 13 years with the Greens and Labor working cooperatively in government, the Greens have managed to pull Labor to go a lot further and a lot faster than they otherwise would have. Um, I think one of the prime examples we've got with that, obviously the 100% renewables that we have in this city that was driven by the Greens. But most particularly before the last Territory election, the Greens put forward a proposal to start phasing out gas in this city, and gas is an extremely polluting fossil fuel. Um, and Andrew Barr, as Chief Minister, slapped it down and said, that's a crazy Greens idea, it'll never happen. Well, post-election, guess what? It started. And now the Labor Party and the ACT is backing the gas phase-out as part of their policy suite too, because the Greens and Labor can work together so effectively. And it only happens because the Greens have a strong presence in this assembly. So that, to me, is the crucial thing. We need to have Greens working with Labor to make sure that they do what most of them, and I know Alicia, believes is necessary to do. Mm. Alicia, would you like to pick up on that one? Yeah, I would. So just, um, I'd just go to um, Tim mentioning Anthony's comments the other day about the coal industry. And um, really, like Labor has ruled out any funding, uh, government funding going to new coal mines. What he was saying was that, you know, and this is a fact, is that coal is currently a big part of our energy mix and a big part of our economy. And it will take time to phase out. And while we are not providing any additional support to that. This is whether if things stack up on an environmental and economic sense, uh, they will go ahead because that is the nature of the environmental law uh, process. But it is the world is moving on from fossil fuels. The private sector is way ahead of our current government on this. And so it's very unlikely that anything new would stack up. And the only people that seem to actually be talking about it uh, the current Liberal government talking about, you know, new coal-fired power stations. No one else, no state governments are wanting that. Um, it's only them. And we have a very ambitious but implementable climate policy, which will take us to 82% of renewables by 2030, um, at the same time creating over 600,000 jobs. And this is really important because we're, we're at a point now where the Australian economy will be left behind because we are so far behind on climate action and we just simply cannot afford another three years and certainly not another decade of this government who have absolutely done nothing. And as Tim said, just thumbing their nose at the concern, really just not listening at all to the science, most importantly, or to the views of the community. And absolutely it is the issue that Canberrans raise with me more than any other and um, we're talking about the bushfires. That that happened quite early, uh, you know, as I'd just sort of been elected as a new member of parliament. And the intensity of feeling from people in Canberra will always stay with me. The the emails that I, I got from people who were just heartbroken about what was happening in our region in areas that we love so much, like Namadji, like the South Coast uh, and all around the country. And... Obviously, that the impacts of climate change were, are happening and are happening more and more, and that our government was doing nothing, um, and they worry for their children and the future. And you know, it it is something that will always stay with me, and it is something that I have spoken about more than any other issue in the parliament um, since being elected, and, and will always continue to do. But I am very proud of our policy. Um, and there's a lot more detail than I'll sort of list through now, obviously, but I would encourage people to go to the to my website or the ALP website and look at the full detail there. It's based on the most comprehensive modelling that an opposition has done on any policy 
uh, ever, uh, and we're very proud of it. And it will it will take we will take the action we need, and only a Labor government will do that. Um, the Greens, while their policy may go further, it's not something that they can get into government and implement. Um, we will, and the coalition will continue to do nothing, and we cannot afford that. Yeah. Alicia, I was wondering if that platform for climate change includes things like land use and, and regenerative farming and encouraging the building of soil across a landscape level. Because uh, according to the project drawdown, that's the the really low-hanging, easy-to-do fruit. Mm. Um, that is something that we've definitely been talking with farmers about. Um, and there is a part of it, part of it is a $3 billion Sorry, $3 billion from our National Reconstruction Fund, which will invest in low-carbon industries. And part of that is working with uh, agriculture around methane reduction and waste reduction. Um, and certainly these are issues that I know Chris Bowen and Julie Collins, our agriculture shadow, have been very much in discussion with farmers about. And farmers are obviously at the forefront of climate change as well. I mean, they're seeing that impact on because they work with the environment, with the land and, and the weather, uh, and they know, and many of them, you know, want, want action more than anyone else. So certainly we'll be working with that sector. Cool. And uh, because we're, we're sort of running out of time for you here, unless you're able to stay a bit later with us. Yeah, I can, I can probably stay till about quarter to ten if that's... Okay, that's fantastic. That was, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, so I'm wondering... Your your um, your personal beliefs and, and stuff are, are fantastic, but how will you be able to influence the party if the party's policy platform is different to your personal beliefs? Yeah, well, part of the reason that I'm in the Labor Party is because it's a party of government and it's Labor governments that have delivered some of the greatest, well, frankly, pretty much all of the great reforms um, of Australia's history, things like Medicare, um, you know, have been delivered by Labor governments. And within that, we have a very consultative process through our, our caucus, which is, um, those who may not know, that's what we call our group of elected members in Parliament of uh, the House of Reps and the Senate. And we discuss all of our policies through that process. Um, and we have policy committees of which all members can go to on every particular policy area. And so, as I have been for the last three years, I um, will continue to raise the issues that are important to Canberrans um, in those forums, and we have that discussion. Uh, and also, all of our shadow ministers are very approachable. You can always go and talk to them about these issues. Like, for example, I've worked very closely with Chris Bowen, uh, talking with him a lot about our climate policy um, as have other members of the caucus. So it's a very consultative process and that's, that's what's great about being part of a party of government and especially if we get into government, uh, I will have that, that voice as part of a government and that's you know, ultimately why you want to be in politics, to work with the government to actually deliver and change the things for a better future for Australia. So one of the things that I hear a lot in the community, um, if I can, if I can pop in there, is that people are a bit tired of this idea that there are only two parties of government. Um, I'm hearing 
so many people say that the two-party system isn't really the best way of governing, actually, that people like the idea that you should have multiple voices to be able to sit around a table um, and discuss ideas and and come to you know different approaches. That's how things work in the community. That's how things should work in our parliament too. And of course, every party does have multiple voices. But when push comes to shove, you have, um, particularly in the Labor Party, extreme party discipline requiring its members to vote how the caucus has decided. Um, but so many people out in the community are going, well, look, yes, of course, we want to get rid of this terrible bunch of, of LNP folks who are in government now. But what we'd like to see in federal parliament is, you know, a big wedge of, of Greens and independents on the crossbench who can actually influence government to go further and faster on a whole lot of things. And that's where, you know, they see that there are, of course, individual members of the Labor Party um, who who do have beliefs that accord with with those of the community, whether it's in terms of treating refugees with dignity and welcoming to this country or whether it's on phasing out fossil fuels or whether it's on um, actually supporting um, trans kids, for instance. All of these things, they see that it's the two-party system, actually, which is standing in the way. And people are really getting ready to break that duopoly um, and wanting multiple voices on the crossbench um, to actually have deeper conversations about these things in public because people actually respect it when you can have these conversations in public too. And that's what we saw in the, you know, the most productive, <clears throat> absolutely, Alicia, you know, most of the reforms that have made this country what it is date back to the Whitlam government, for instance, and, and, and we all respect that. But the most productive and useful government in um, in the you know, recent memory in the last generation or more was the Gillard government where Prime Minister Gillard was working with a crossbench of Greens and Independents to get through really fantastic reforms and a whole suite of things on climate, getting dental care into Medicare for children, all of those kinds of things came through in the Gillard years. Um, the Parliamentary Budget Office, which has been such a brilliant boon to our democracy. So, you know, I think, I think people are really keen to get multiple voices there into Parliament so that we can have these deeper debates on a whole range of things and get some you know, get some deeper democracy going on. Mm. So, so something that um, our listeners have brought up quite frequently, and it's a topic we often cover on this show, is the plight of refugees. And it was just recently um, we heard from Labor's standpoint that they were also having a very strong stance against refugees coming by boat. What sort of support would Labor be looking at giving to refugees, Alicia? So if a Labor government is elected, there will be some very important changes made for refugees, including abolishing the temporary protection um, visas and safe haven enterprise visas, which mean that there are people here in Australia with no uh, permanent sense of their future um, at the moment. Uh, you know, they can't be sure that they'll always be here. They can't... Um, apply for many sorts of jobs or, or education and this will we would abolish those. We would end indefinite detention. That is a really important point. Um, and I've been really proud that we have, Labor have been calling on, for example, the Medivac refugees who are currently been in the, in the Park Hotel and other places, that they should be in the community. And also that we took a very strong stance on the Biloela family, the Murugapan family, and have called all term uh, for them to be returned to Biloela. And that is obviously something that will happen as soon as possible if a Labor government 
is elected. Now, I believe they um, are back in Bilawea. They're just they don't have any status, so they were returned quite quietly uh, to their community, oh. but they've not actually been given status, so they're still in the same predicament, but they're physically yes. in Bilawea. Because the youngest daughter, I understand, still doesn't have um, the right visa approval. Is that that's mm. right? I think. Mm. But we anyway. This is something that Labor. Um, and Anthony Albanese have been calling the government on since day one of this term. I've also, you know, the issue with um, refugees from Afghanistan uh, is a huge one. And I um, have talked with many here in the Canberra community who are desperately wanting uh, their family members' visas to be approved quickly. So when um, Kabul fell, I think, my, well, myself and I think most members of Parliament were inundated with people asking for their help to get visas to um, come here. And my understanding was that the government did seem to be working quite cooperatively on that process. But these people are still waiting. And that is something uh, that we need to keep the pressure on. And I'm sure that a Labor government, again, would put the priority on resolving these issues quickly because these people are still waiting in absolutely horrendous situations. We've called on the government to increase the intake of refugees from Afghanistan um, and more generally the humanitarian intake. Um, and well, I hope Canberrans have seen that this is a, an issue that I've been a strong advocate on um, as my over my time in Parliament. It was the issue that I first became involved in politics was um, being involved in refugee action uh, when I was in Sydney, and it's something that I will always advocate on as long as I'm in the Parliament. But certainly uh, Labor has some very different policies to the Coalition on Refugees uh, that I would be very pleased to see implemented should we form, gov form government. Yeah, look, again, this is, this is where the Greens very clearly would prefer a Labor government to a Coalition government, but we need more than that. Um, you know, it, it, it must be remembered that it was Labor under Paul Keating that started mandatory detention onshore and it was Labor under Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard that started the offshore detention system. Um, far too often, Labor finds itself, um, as a party, appealing to the the right, appealing to the, to the lowest common denominator. And just this week, we saw a very, very clear statement from Labor HQ that if you come by a boat, you will never ever be resettled in this country and it's that kind of demonization of desperate people by the institution of the ALP not necessarily by its individual members but by the institution that it is a that is a real problem um, and you know as I said at the beginning of of the program my parents both came to this country as refugees I I grew up with that deep understanding that you know for instance you know, not all, but some people smugglers are trying to do the right thing by people. You know, Oscar Schindler, who we celebrate so so strongly around the world, was a people smuggler. Um, and, and it's very easy to kind of do this demonisation of people smugglers, demonisation of people coming by boat, demonisation of refugees as illegal in some way. Um, that too often happens under both of the major parties and that again is why we just need to have different voices you know independents and greens are very clearly saying as 
as a privileged, wealthy country, we have the capacity to be kind to refugees, like Canada, a very similar country to ours, which has open arms, 14 days maximum processing period before you're out in the community as a, as a, you know, as a member of the community, being able to work, being able to get the support that you need, being able to get housing. We could do that in Australia. We could do that if we had parties in power that were willing to just stand up to the, the, the nasty fear campaigns and say, no, this is what is right, this is what we will do, and that is what the Greens will always, always work to try to do. Mm. And I have to just um, add in there, Alicia, I'm a Canadian and Australian dual citizen, so I've actually lived um, in major cities in Canada where I've seen the implementation of refugees into the community work brilliantly, and there's a lot of social services um, support for refugees in Canada. Is that something we can hope to achieve with, with Labor? Yes, um, and actually... So there's, there's sort of two issues here. There is our treatment of asylum seekers, um, particularly that have come by boat, but our humanita- Australia's treatment of refugees through the humanitarian intake program is actually quite good. Uh, there's always room for improvement, um, and certainly the support for refugees when they are settling here is something uh, that there's always room for improvement in terms of um, support for Things like, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of some of the recently arrived uh, refugees from Afghanistan that I've spoken with um, since the fall of Kabul and the, how difficult it is for them to afford housing and things like that um, in an expensive city like Canberra. So there's always more we can do there. Um, but that is something that, uh, yes, like Australia has quite a good uh, intake of um humanitarian intake of refugees and as I said Labor has Labor is committed to increasing that um, and it's something Canberrans I know as well do a lot there are many Canberrans just taking this into their own hands I know many people who are uh, an organisation that volunteer to support recently arrived refugees and it's such important work just helping them to you know um know some make some friends in the community and know you know where to do their shopping and learn english all of these things um really great work that people are doing Hmm. So you touched on that point there where, you know, housing affordability, um, housing security is a huge challenge for refugees. It's not only a, a massive challenge for refugees, it's also a massive challenge um, for Canberrans who are low income or on income support. So I know that's um, policies both you and the Greens have been advocating for some more effective policy around the cost of living and housing affordability. Perhaps we could get uh, Tim to touch on that first and then we could come back to you, Alicia. Okay. Yeah. So on housing affordability, um, there's, you know, anybody who tells you that there's a silver bullet here (laughs) is lying to you. Housing is an incredibly, incredibly complex thing. But one of the one of the key points that's behind the ridiculous housing unaffordability in this country is that, that the taxation system is designed to make housing an investment for the wealthy instead of a way to get a roof over people's heads. We just need to turn that around. And it's and it's that quite unusual tax situation with the negative gearing and the capital gains tax exemptions, which sets Australia aside from the rest of the world. Since the 1980s, the glo- globally, the price of housing has gone up by about 60% around the world on average. In Australia, since the 1980s, the price of housing has gone up by 570%. 
you know, and you know, so so supply issues are a problem around the world. Accessibility issues are a problem around the world. It's the tax system that makes housing and investment for the wealthy to make ever more money, which sets Australia aside and makes our housing absolutely insane and out of control. So we've got to build more. We've got to build more homes. We've got to we've got to build more usable homes. We've got to build more affordable homes. But fundamentally, we've got to change the incentives, which make it cheaper and easier for people you know who already have seven or eight or nine homes as investment properties to buy even more than it is for somebody to break into the the, the, the housing market in the first place and get their first home to live in. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, obviously, from the coalition government you know by with with their first homeowners a, approach of of reducing the deposit is only going to increase that um because it is it's it's actually making investment you know more open to people rather than you know getting people deeper into debt for longer and longer and longer instead of actually taking the heat out of the market so yeah the greens really want to work very, very hard with the next government to try to make sure that we can at least limit those taxation incentives, as well as, of course, to invest you know, very heavily in new build of affordable social housing, government housing, but also generally affordable housing for people to buy. Mm. Well, I do think that the housing tax scare um, during the last federal election mm. campaign is probably what got the Liberals re-elected in the big part of that. It was definitely one of them, yeah, one of the factors. Yes. Yeah. And quite Clive Palmer's $80 million of advertising didn't, didn't help either. Mm. But the, the scare campaigns were very damaging in the last... Uh, last campaign. At this election, Labor have taken a, um, a really strong um, policy around building, it's called uh, housing, sorry, Australian um, Future Housing Fund, and that will build 30,000 new affordable and social housing dwellings. Um, and a proportion of those are set aside particularly for people fleeing domestic violence and uh, older women at risk of homelessness. Um, and so this is a really strong policy and we've also committed to an, um, developing a national housing strategy in government because, as I agree with Tim, it is, there are so many different facets to this problem and it certainly is a big problem in Canberra um, with housing prices and just skyrocketing and also rents um, it being, you know, the most expensive place to rent in the country. Um, so I'm pr proud that Labor has a strong policy on that. And the other side of it as well is wages. So wages have been stagnant um, for a long time in Australia and under this government they have fallen. Uh, it, the rate of growth has fallen each year. Um, and this is something the government never talks about. They don't accept that this is a problem, whereas um, we've seen in the pandemic particularly has highlighted the risk of people not having secure work and just, you know, Labor wants to see Australians have secure, well-paid jobs, and this is a key focus that we'll have as well. We've got detailed plans around addressing wages, um, particularly in uh, industries like aged care. Um, that's part of our plan to fix aged care as well as to increase wages there. We've got a detailed plan around the gender pay gap uh, and closing that and that part of that includes um, giving the Fair Work Commission more power to intervene in female dominated industries that are underpaid. Um, so wages are a really key part of that uh, puzzle as well, the cost of living puzzle. Um, and a good thing as well about our climate action plan is that it will also reduce power bills um, for Australians on average by $275 a year. So cost of living absolutely is a huge issue, including here in Canberra. So 
um, and that's something Labor will address if we're elected. And that is especially a, a major issue for the cost of energy for people who are lower income, um, who are most impacted by the climate change situation, because they can't, if they're renters in a, you know, a property that they're struggling to pay the rent on, they can't put solar on their roof, they can't take advantage of the um, offer to get an interest-free loan to get an electric car. So, you know, you, you've really got a, a large contingent of people um, in the ACT and, of course, across the country um, who would love to be more environmentally um, supportive and conscious but can't, uh, just can't afford to. That, that's exactly right and um, that uh, leads to one of our, part of our climate policy is also um, establishing 400 community batteries around the country and this is exactly what that does. Um, it enables people who can't put solar on their roof um, because they're renting or they can't afford it to be able to um, join into this scheme of sharing, storing the energy uh, from those batteries. And we've committed to put one in Dixon, uh, three in three in the ACT, so also one in um, one in the electorate of Fenner and one in Bean, but one in one in Dixon. And um, because Canberrans and Australians more generally have been, again, way ahead of the federal government on the take-up of renewable energy. And more than one in four Canberra homes have already got solar uh, on their roof, but they're not using that energy as efficiently as they could because they can't store it because batteries are prohibitively expensive for most people. So these community batteries will enable people to um, share that energy and store that energy, um, including those who, who can't uh, have solar on their, on their own properties. So, yeah, I might have to go. Yeah, I was going to say, we're at the end of our time with you, and I just yeah. wanted to let you finish that thought. So, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us this morning. I really appreciate that, Alicia. I know campaigning keeps you super busy. It does. Um, I'm sorry I can't stay longer. And um, thank you very much. You're welcome. You. And just a quick I'm question sure we'll if, be talking a lot. Yeah, if folks want to get in touch with you um, or they want to host a yard sign, uh, where should they go to do that? Oh, thank you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, please send an email to my email. It's on my website at alicia.pain.mp at aph.gov.au. Um, I would really uh, appreciate people's help with that. Um, and also, if, you, if there are any issue you want to raise with me, please send an email there or I will be out and about at many, many mobile offices or knocking on your door sometime soon and really look forward to talking to you before the election. Okay, thank you so much. So that was a huge thank you thank to you. Alicia Payne, Federal Member for Canberra, for joining us this morning. <coughs> so we're going to um, stay with Tim for the rest of the show and then give um, Tim a chance to expand on some of the Greens policies that we're only just able to lightly touch mm. on in the first half of the show. So we're talking about housing affordability. Like I'm looking at numbers here. I was reading a statement released by um, Dr. Emma Campbell, who's the CEO of mm. ATCOS, and some of the numbers she's put forward are quite frightening about what we need. We're talking about a need of 25,000 dwellings per year mm. just to keep you know, on top of what's happening. We've got people who are um, on a housing list that are looking at waiting three to four years that um, frankly can't wait yeah. that long. Yeah, I was thinking that when Alicia um, made her point about the ALP policy being to build 30,000 new homes mm. and yeah, well, like Emma Campbell just said, we need almost all of that in mm. Canberra in the next year. Mm. Um, so... The Greens policy actually is to build a million new homes over the next decade um, with a, a big fund designed kind of like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation um, as, a, as a fund that the government can establish to ensure that those homes get built and that they are then um, either rented at a capped rent for a, a quarter of a quarter of a, a family's 
wage um, or sold for a capped fee of uh, $300,000 so that it's, it is affordable homes that we are building very deliberately. And crucially as part of that, to come to your point about energy poverty that you made before as well, mm-hmm. is that those are to be homes which are actually, you know, insulated and properly built. You know, the, the thing about building new build is that you can build it right in the mm-hmm. first place. It's really expensive to retrofit onto old homes, but it's actually <laughs> barely more expensive, if at all, to do your build properly in the the first place. Well, that's why we see um, so many knockdown rebuilds. I'm that's guessing. right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and that also actually comes to one of the you know another great another great benefit of the of the Greens Labor mm-hmm. Cooperative Agreement that we've got here in the ACT is that um, Shane Rattenbury just announced a couple of weeks ago um, an expansion of the of the scheme to help renters and um, and people on low incomes to to get energy efficiency upgrades to their homes, whether it be through you know double glazing or insulation or upgrading to more efficient white goods or all of those kinds of things, um, replacing gas heating with efficient electric heating, those kinds of things. It's really, really crucially important and that's the kind of leadership that you get when you have Greens and Labor working together cooperatively um, to get environmental and social outcomes working together. Because mm. um, we really can do that. It's been one of the great successes over a very long time of 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 the right to pretend that you can't, you know, it, being environmentally friendly is too expensive and poor people can't do it. Well, that's just it's always been a lie, and people are starting to realise now that it is a lie. We can do these things together. You can get environmental justice and social justice together. Mm. Well, in what? fact, I mean, it's always been my belief that you you can't get social justice without environmental totally. justice because if your environment breaks down then <clears throat> so does your society absolutely and and those impacted first and worst are always the poor it's always the poor who get shoved into you know into the way of expansion of of rubbish dumps and and coal extraction and you know what naomi klein calls sacrifice zones um, you know, the flood zones, building on the flood zones in Western Sydney, which we're continuing to do, um, even now after they've just been flooded again, um, it's the poor people who are, who, are, who are shoved into shoddy housing um, in zones which are going to cop the first beating from environmental collapse. Yeah, well, even in Lismore, that was the case. Right. We've had, um, on the show just about a month ago, we had the folks in Korokai in Lismore mm. telling us what was happening on the ground. And they said, mm. look, the people that were worst impacted were all the people in the mm. sort of low-income areas of the community because they were all the mm. ones who were most prone to the flooding. Mm. Absolutely. And the ones with no insurance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, if I can if I can take that as a as a bit of a segue in terms of, of social justice and, and the poor being the ones who are shoved into harm's way. Um, you know, I, I, I think Alicia makes really good points and, and we certainly support the Labor Party's moves to um, to increase wage security and increase wages and, and the stagnation and lowering of wages has been a serious, serious problem in this country under this um, government for the last decade. Um, what is terribly, terribly disappointing is that we're not seeing from Labor 
um, any of the right signals on supporting the poorest of the poor, um, which should be slap bang in Labor's bailiwick. Mm. In particular, I'm thinking of Labor's statement just last week from Andrew Lee, in fact, um, the member for Fenner here in Canberra, that Labor is no longer even going to do a review of the rate of income support payments for the unemployed and people on disability support and, and, and pensioners. You know, it is... It is absolutely unforgivable that in a country with as much wealth as we have here in Australia, one of the wealthiest countries in the history of the world, frankly, that we have approaching three million people living below the poverty line and people you know, who are unable to get a job or excluded from the workforce for whatever reason, um, who are attempting to live on government payments of $46 a day when the poverty line is $88 a day, skipping meals, not able to feed their children properly, worried about being able to keep a roof over their heads, sometimes not even able to and living in cars, not being able to fill their prescriptions to get medication they desperately need because they can't afford it. Um, it is absolutely unforgivable that that's the case when both the major parties have recently just signed off on tax cuts for the rich the stage three tax cuts which give nine thousand dollars a year to people earning you know two hundred and fifty three hundred thousand dollars they get nine thousand dollars a year in this last budget people on income support get got a one-off payment of 250 bucks well thank you very much that is really absolutely unforgivable um, and that is why, again, we need more than just a swap out of the LNP for the ALP. We need a big crossbench because it's it's the independents and the Greens who are standing up and saying, we need to lift JobSeeker. We need to lift Ausstudy. We need to lift the disability support pension. Yeah, we need to lift the age pension. All of that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm absolutely you know, delighted that the Greens are putting forward a policy um, this election that I've been working on for years through my work at the Green Institute um, for a livable income guarantee, that we're saying that every person in our society should be given what they need to live above the poverty line. Mm. So all payments should be lifted above the poverty line to $88 a day, currently an index to that poverty line. But also we should abolish the horrific punitive you know, um, mutual obligations system, which also, it must be said, Labor has has backed um, most of. I was very pleased to see this week that they finally came out and said they would abolish the cashless debit card, which is a really nasty piece of Bring that on. That needs to go. So, yes, good, they'll do that. But we still have work for the dole. We still have the, the ridiculous Parents Next program where single parents who are on, on income support have to take parenting classes, which, which is based on this nasty assumption that poor people are worse parents than rich people, when in fact rich people are outsourcing their parenting to the poor most of the time anyway. Um, you know, it's it's quite disgusting, a whole lot of these policies that make people jump through burning hoops in order to get the scraps from the table when the rich are making off like bandits at the moment, particularly the super rich. Not well, the for-profit agencies that are managing Absolutely. these contracts for the um, Centrelink Absolutely. Um, requirements. So there you go. Yeah. That's already their incentive is to make money off the people. Absolutely. Um, they make money from... Um, from getting people punished for, you know, not, not meeting their requirements. Um, and, yeah, look, Alicia did good work this, time, this term trying to stop the Braddon Centrelink from, from being closed, although, unfortunately, it did end up getting closed. But what would be better 
is if people didn't have to go to Centrelink, you know. Mm-hmm. People are having to go there every damn week to, to, to fill in stupid forms and be berated. Well, prove for, their eligibility. Prove their eligibility yeah. time yeah. after time after time. Well, they shouldn't have to do that. We should just say, look, if you need support to feed yourself, as a country, we're going to say, here you go, we can help you to do that. And as a, and by doing that, here's the thing, apart from any, apart from the fact that it's simply the right thing to do and it is frankly immoral to leave people living below the poverty line, you know, you could act, you can mount an economic argument that says actually giving people enough to live is what will help them get back onto their feet and get into the workforce. If you want people to get into the workforce, if you want unemployed people to get into the workforce, the last thing you should be doing is make them spend tens of hours every week um, doing stupid stupid busy work that's preventing them from actually getting their lives back on track so that they can find employment. The last thing you should be doing is keeping them so poor that they can't afford decent clothes to turn up to job interviews to, you know, to get them a phone that someone can contact them on. Exactly. The last thing we should be doing is making them pay, you know, through the nose for for, for not being able to afford dental care Mm. so that when they turn up to a job interview, their teeth are are in poor (laughs) condition and they get turned away from the job. Um, Yeah. And that's one of the other things that the Greens are Mm. very proudly promoting this, this election is to get dental care properly covered by Medicare so that everybody can get access to the basics of dental care. It is so fundamental to physical health. Mm. It is so fundamental to equity. Mm. Um, We know that there is a really, really close correlation between having Mm. poor dental hygiene and not being able to find decent employment and decent housing. Mm. We just need to fix this stuff. Mm. And we can. We can afford it as a country. Mm. If we bloody tax the big corporations and and the super wealthy, Mm. there's heaps of money to go around. Mm. Yeah, totally. Before we leave the... the uh, cost of living and jobs and, and that sort of stuff. I've, I've got these philosophical problems with jobs themselves and the, the way we organise society into the rich class which employs the poor class. Yep. And, and so that the actual wealth and the actual work is owned by yep. an elite set of, of rich people um, as well as the government currently. Um, how, how would the Greens go about trying to get mm. the ownership of... Uh, both the things that produce for our basic needs and and the actual work that's that's mm. needs doing into the hands of the community rather mm. than in the hands of people who live in Richestown as it currently is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, we're talking about rearranging the entire economic system here, <laughs> as we often do. As here. we often do, Scotty. <laughs> um, and you know, you and I have talked about universal basic income and supporting cooperatives and all of those kinds of things in the past. The Greens absolutely are keen to support the development of cooperatives, which is crucial to 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 what you're talking about there. Um, I've been personally working towards the universal basic income as Greens policy for some time. We're not there yet, but the livable income guarantee is a really, really big step in that direction. And to me, that's a crucial part of it. Because, you know, as well as who owns what, what we have through through the current economic system whereby you're, you're not considered as a reasonable participating member of society unless you have a job which is paid labour for somebody else. Unless, of course, you're very rich, in which case it doesn't apply to you. you or if you work, work for yourself. Um, but this idea that... You have to you have to have paid labour to be a productive member of of society, and in order to do that, we're going to punish you, absolutely punish you if you don't have paid labour, and say that it's your fault, and terrify people in 
terrible working conditions into not leaving jobs where where they have impossible to, to meet conditions or they're being treated poorly by their employers or, or however it goes. That system which, um, which ties your capacity to live really, really entangled with your capacity to sell your labour to somebody else, the livable income guarantee severs that. It ends that situation. It says, actually, we as a country, we as a society will give you what you need to survive. You know, not not a hell of a lot. We're talking poverty line payments, but we will give you what you need but to actually what it is now. <laughs> get by. Double what it is now. We'll give you what you need to actually survive um, because that is what is appropriate. And, you know, and that gives you the capacity then to make a choice. You know, you can work part time. You can commit you know, yourself to volunteering. You can you can do to food gardening, for instance, urban farming, so that you can you supply your own food and your neighbours. However, it is that you want to participate, you can choose. You can enter the paid workforce, but you will have the capacity to leave a job where you're being maltreated, because you know that you will have a true safety net there to take care of you, to give you what you need to survive. You'll have access to to Medicare funded dental care and Medicare funded mental health care. You'll You'll have access to more affordable housing. You'll have access to payments that'll that'll allow you to survive over the poverty line. So that's a, you know a crucial part of rearranging our economic system. We're not kind of suggesting that we can we can do it all really really fast and and really comprehensively. But if we did those kinds of things, if we actually taxed the billionaires and the big corporations who are getting away with with ripping out the the natural and human resources of of this country and and hoarding it like bloody dragons on piles of gold not paying back anything to the community not paying their tax um, if we do that, then we can afford to do all these things that enable people to survive, mm. and that would just make a massive difference mm. to people's lives, but also to the way we consider ourselves as a, as a country and as a society. Mm. Yeah, I mean that, that. To paraphrase what you're saying is, we need to shift the the focus of the economy from wealth creation mm. to meeting our basic needs. Yep, absolutely. Mm. The economy should be about how we support people and protect the planet and look after each other and you know that's what it should be and like i was saying with the housing market um before it's just been turned into you know wealth creation is the be all and end all and and that really it's been happening increasingly obviously for a couple hundred years now but accelerating dramatically in the the 60s 70s and then the 1980s where it completely took off and neoliberalism took mm. off um and it's coming to its end. It really is. It, it is starting to collapse because people are seeing it for what it is. You know, the Wizard of Oz has come out from behind the curtains. We know what's going on here. Um, we know that, you know, governments, you know, aren't actually letting letting the market rip. They're just, they're actually handing money to their mates and their donors. Um, the market's got nothing to do with it. It's not an invisible hand. It's pretty bloody visible what's going on here. They're ripping money out of the pockets of the poor and handing it to the rich. Well, that's the audacity <laughs> of it, right, where they feel so emboldened yeah. by what they've been allowed to get away with that they're not even trying to hide it from no. us anymore. Yeah. You know? and you, you, sorry, Zeno, I'll, I'll give you a go shortly. No, 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 go for it, Scotty. I had a good go in the beginning. <laughs> Great. Um, but, yeah, uh, you were mentioning that this has all got to end somewhere and this great acceleration that's been going on and you look at the curves and it is an exponential curve. Yeah. Now, that's going to have to finish somewhere because we're just running out of earth yep. and we're running out of time climate-wise. I mean, 
how are we going to prepare for life in uh, a totally different economy? How are we going to, mm. I mean, this could all come very suddenly and, mm. you know, run out of fuel, for instance. If, we, if our society ran out of fossil fuels for any reason, whether the mm. ship sank in a storm or, you know, a war in Ukraine or something mm. like that, then things would collapse really quickly. How can we prepare and, and be ready for that as a society mm. and take it seriously? Because we do. The, if the science is anywhere near right, we're heading for that. Yeah. Um, that is absolutely one of the things that's been driving me for many years. And it's one of the reasons why I actually do want to be a, a, a member of the House of Representatives, because I think there's a really important role for a local member to be kind of working to support and enable the community to find the paths through, as well as to be, of course, you know, in there in the parliament doing what we can to kind of, you know, to turn the system around and and to support democracy and and to, to shift some of those really clear, um, you know, really clear systemic barriers. Um, but we need to be, we need to be, out in the community doing things like you know urban farming like I was mentioning before and there's a heap of that going on I'm absolutely delighted to have a plot for for the the patchwork urban farm in my front yard and we get a box of veggies every week from from a bunch of of people's front yards around town there's all of the buy nothing groups which have which um, I was you know proud to, to have seeded originally about 10 years ago, which have now grown to one in 10 people in this city as a member of, of one of those buy nothing groups, which is about the sharing economy. It's about a true sharing economy where, where people say, well, I don't particularly need this anymore. Does anybody else want it? Or I might have a need for something like that. And, and can I borrow it? Or can, can, yeah, would you be willing to give it to me temporarily? Um, things like the, the wonderful Canberra community toolbox, which has opened up recently that, that kind of in some ways grew out of the buy nothing groups there's a whole lot of these things that we can do to to build social cohesion um and i think crucial to that as well is having leaders who are willing to stand up and support the you know the fact that every member of our community is valuable and valued and stand up against some of the real nastiness that we're seeing um at in 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 recent times from from politics it's not just it's not just in economic terms that you know that the gloves have come off and that we're seeing it blatantly, but we're seeing white supremacy being mouthed in our bloody parliaments. We're seeing our political leaders right the way up to the Prime Minister making extraordinarily dehumanising transphobic <laughs> comments. We're seeing, you know, our, our politicians weaponise difference to drive people apart. We desperately need, in the face of... The difficulties that are coming with the climate crisis, we've locked in a whole lot of stuff that we know is just going to get worse and we can turn things around, but we do know that things are going to get difficult. And one of the most crucial things is that we have leaders who are standing up for every person being valuable and refusing to countenance that we should have racism and, and, and homophobia and, and transphobia and, and dehumanising the poor as well. Dehumanising the poor. Um, well, I guess yeah. division is the dark yeah. side of diversity, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the Greens, to me, one of the reasons I'm a Green is because we look at the world through an ecological understanding and we see that 
interdependent diversity is the key to survival. You know, you need diversity and you need that diversity to be to be connected for people to understand that we are all dependent on each other. And I think we got a really clear lesson on that during the pandemic. Our own personal health is dependent on the health of those around us and it's dependent on the behaviour of those around us. And we had a small vocal minority kind of, you know, trying to, to shout that down, but most of us really get it. Most of us ran out to get vaccinated as soon as we can. Most of us have been, you know, still wearing masks even though we don't have to all the time. Um, actually being careful and being sensible and caring for each other. And speaking about the pandemic and going back to the issue about um, transfer of wealth, we've seen in the last two and a half years the largest wealth transfer in our Mm. modern history. You know, we've got Mm. the elite profiteering off Mm. the situation where, you know, people have been left without any access to income, any access to being able to feed their families. Fascinatingly, Mm -hmm. of course, what we also saw in 2020 Mm -hmm. was that the government with the, 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 you know, stroke of a pen could get rid of mutual obligations and double, um, you know, support for, for people on income support just at the stroke of a pen because, of course, it was all of these people, you know, it's this difference between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. All of a sudden there were people who were out of jobs um, and we had to say that they were reasonable people. So we just doubled um, income support and we got rid of all of the mutual obligations and, and amazingly, guess what happened? People's mental health improved. People's physical health improved. People found their way back into work. Mm. Um, And, you know, Dr. Elise Klein at at the Crawford School here at ANU has done some extraordinary research into the impact of of that. And it just, you know, the livable income guarantee Mm. that the Greens are proposing is to do that properly, systemically, um, forever into the future. And we have now seen just so clearly the massive difference it makes to people's lives. Um, you know, people saying that the dark cloud that had been hanging over them was suddenly lifted and that they had the capacity to, you know, to actually plan their lives, pay down their debt, get themselves ready to to, to apply for jobs, really get their, get their you know, their, their houses in order, um, support their kids, do what they needed to do. Um, you know, the pandemic showed us that we could do that. And then it also showed us that we could take it away. <laughs> and then where that money went. And where the money went. Yeah. And you got millions and millions of dollars going to Jerry Harvey mm-hmm. and going to Kerry Stokes and whoever else mm-hmm. just making a mozza, this gas-fired recovery, which is on every level the wrong thing to do, churning public money into the hands of people who are destroying the planet. Um, yeah, so it showed us both both paths. Well, I mean, the, the Australia Institute brought out some figures after the budget. Um, I'm not sure whether they were for this year or for last year, but the, the public subsidies of various different sorts that they were able to identify to the fossil fuel industry alone, mm-hmm. I think, was went up from 10 point something billion dollars to 11 point something yeah. billion dollars. 11.9 billion dollars yeah, a year. It's not little stuff. Yeah, it's not. And and just imagine, you know, that, that is money that is purely going to very, very large corporations who are destroying the planet. Like, there's absolutely no justification for that. Take that money 
and you could afford to pay every single person coming out of the coal mines mm. a decent wage for pretty much the rest of mm. their lives. And that's one of the things that the Greens are promoting this time too, not not for the rest of their lives, <laughs> but we're saying we should have, we need a true Just Transitions program mm. if we're to tackle the climate crisis. We need to close down the coal industry and the gas industry fast. It's not good enough for Labor to say we're not going to give any public money to the coal industry when they're still saying, oh, well, if it stacks up on under environmental, you know, well, it'll stack up environmentally because our federal environmental laws don't actually consider climate change to be a relevant consideration. So, of course, you're going to get coal mines that manage to get the tick off under a system which is designed to let them happen. Um, You know, instead of just kind of sweeping stuff under the carpet, we need to be planning now to close down the fossil fuel sector. Mm -hmm. There's actually not that many workers in the fossil fuel sector in Australia. There's 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 a few tens of thousands. So the Greens are saying we want to guarantee all of those people a job. With a subsidised wage, we would we would see the government set up a fund to subsidise everybody's wage coming out of the fossil fuel sector for ten years, so that whatever job they find next, whether it be in clean energy or whether it be in you know being a fitter and turner somewhere else or whatever it happens to be, the government would top up their income to the level that they were earning in the fossil fuel sector um, for ten years to make that transition happen. And hopefully retraining them so they yeah, can absolutely, you know, yeah. work. Retraining in. programs, seeding new industries in, in those communities, mm-hmm. all of the things that you need to do to make the transition happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could fund that super, super easily with far less than we're currently spending on propping up the already profitable fossil fuel sector and corporations like Chevron, which are making tens of billions of dollars in profits, um, paying zero tax and getting government subsidies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. And, you know, I, all our listeners will realise by now, I think if they've been listening for very long, that I'm, I'm very big on co-ops. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> these can fit into all sorts of these things. Like, if we're going to rearrange our economy so that the the big spout of wealth is not coming from those at the bottom and going straight up to the top. We need to cut that off at some point. And that point has got to be uh, work, essentially, um, because that's really the big the big way that all these profits go up to the top. So are there places like... I've been inspired by the Mondragon cooperatives in, in northern Spain. In, in northern Italy, um, they've got an incredible system of social care. Mm. Um, and I've been pushing for Canberra to become a sister city with Bologna up there. Yeah. It's a very similar size and it's really leading the world in this social economy. Um, and, you know, the Cleveland co-ops in Ohio are another one. What what are the things that the Greens are looking to overseas in in northern Syria for a democratic system? What are the Greens looking to overseas to sort of inspire what they would like to see in the future and and what Mm. they're working towards? Well, all of those examples that you've given, um, you know, absolutely Bologna, Barcelona, Rojava in northern Syria, yeah, Cleveland and and Preston in the UK doing all sorts of really interesting things. the key thing in all of those cases, of course, is that it's coming from the grassroots up and and it's it's getting kind of people at, at sort of local levels to support. Very, very rarely does that kind of thing actually come from the top down. So, yeah, at a federal parliamentary level, you can do certain things, for instance, to, to make... Um, to shift our our corporate regulatory system so that instead of channeling every organisation to register as a company limited by guarantee, you can actually support properly 
the development of of cooperatives and and you know other cooperatively managed associations and things like that that's that's one thing you can do at a federal level although it kind of does need to be kind of negotiated through coag with all of the states and territories as well um, you can offer support to the development of co-ops but as I said before, one of the things that I'm most excited about is the idea of being a local member who can actually do some of that kind of, you know, work as well. You know, leading by example on making, you know, making my office, if I were to be elected, a space where people could come and, you know, get involved in some of the sharing economy and the cooperative economy and, and find out information on how to do these kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, it... it it needs to be driven by the community. It absolutely needs to come from the community, but there are ways in which currently government makes it harder <laughs> that we need to, you know, we need to remove those barriers and we need to actually start creating, you know, easier pathways for people to take. Mm, I reckon the first barrier is probably that nobody knows it's there and if they do yeah. know it's there, they're worried that it's not feasible. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it is difficult. That's the thing. It's it's difficult to do because our system is skewed in favour of profit making above everything else. Well, I mean, these things will make a profit. They'll just keep it in the community. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, but it's skewed it's skewed in favour of, of profit making and, and extracting that profit yeah. and taking it somewhere else. Yeah. It's extraction. Our, yeah. our, our system is based on extraction of natural resources, of human resources, of wealth, of, you know, taking it and putting it somewhere else behind closed doors. And that is ecologically disastrous. Um, it is, yeah, it's the worst thing you can possibly do if, if, there's, if there's a living organism which takes a whole lot of the resources out of its local environment and then somehow... You know, sequesters that away somewhere else. <laughs> the whole environment suffers. People should look up the impossible hamster on YouTube. <laughs> it's a very good one. I'll have to look that one up, Scotty. Yeah. So um, we might touch on one of the listener questions that came in as well, which mm-hmm. is about what you're talking about here. Um, so this comes from um, Emma in Nunnawal. And Emma's saying, look, she's been reading a lot about the Greens policies and she really loves what you're all about, but she's really concerned you're not going to be able to implement them if you get elected. Like, how mm. are you going to take, how are you going to action these policies? You're going to have mm. tremendous resistance from the billionaire class. Yep. You're going to have a lot of people with corporate interests who are going to be lobbying against you. Mm. So she, she's, how, she wants to know, how can you make this happen? Yes, it is hard. Um, it is absolutely hard, um, but we need to try um, and we need to do everything we can to get the Greens into a position where we can have negotiating power. That's the, that's the crucial point. Um, you know, we see here in the ACT with the Greens um, sharing power with Labor. Again, we're still the smaller party, of course, comparative to Labor. So, so Labor's different worldview gets more of a say, and the Greens can make changes. You know, sometimes very substantial changes, like getting to 100% renewable electricity. Um, but you know, it's it's chipping away, and it's finding those points of intervention where you can where you can actually make some really deep change. At a federal level, it's going to be harder. Um, it's harder for us to win seats in the House of Representatives, of course. But there's a handful around the country, including the seat of Canberra, where we are, you know, absolutely in with a chance this election of doing so. And if we can get a bunch of seats in the House, as well as having balance of power in the Senate, where we're set to go this election from nine senators to 12 or even 13 out of 76, that's a very solid block in the Senate. Then we start to get the negotiating power where we can where we can have a go at some of the basic settings. And to me, one of the most crucial things that we could do um, 
in balance of power in the next parliament is not just get an, an anti-corruption commission, which Labor are thankfully talking about and looking to do. The, their model is is good. The um, the Centre for, for, for Public Integrity gave them kind of a, a, a yellow um, and gave the Greens model a, a green. So, you know, the Greens model is, is stronger and better, but Labor at least are talking about a decent model for an anti-corruption commission. The problem that we have, of course, is that a hell of a lot of the corruption in our system is perfectly legal. So an anti-corruption commission isn't going to do anything about the absolutely legal corruption that we have primarily through political donations. And to me, the most crucial thing that we could possibly do in the next term of parliament to change the settings of the way politics happens is ban donations from corporations altogether, limit donations to political parties to $1,000 absolute, you know, cumulative $1,000 cap per year. Because fundamentally, that's what democracy is about. Democracy supposedly is one person, one vote. We don't have that in Australia. We have one person, one vote, but you vote once every few years and then you're told to bugger off. Don't even think about protesting or we'll, we'll set up new laws to make it illegal to protest. And, you know, social organisations aren't allowed to advocate for, for, for deep change anymore just to help people to get food on their plates. You know, vote once every few years then bugger off if you're actually wanting to improve the world. But if you're a corporation wanting to extract wealth, then you are welcome to you know, pay lots and lots and lots of money, tens of millions of dollars from the corporate um, from the corporations flowing into the pockets of the of the political parties to buy them access to decision making processes, we have to end that. We absolutely well, that's have very American style that. politics. Right? It is, yeah. it oh, is. And I look, think it's always it's more Australian style. We're worse than them, according to that uh, movie. What was the movie? The the big deal. Yeah, oh, right, that's yeah. worth checking out. Yeah. So yeah, to to me. To me, that's the fundamental thing that we absolutely have to do to start changing some of those settings so that democracy is democratic, um, so that we get the big money out of politics and we get the scope for people's voices to be heard properly in politics. Um, yeah, that, that, I think, is the first step that we have to take and then we can start to chip away at some of those other big ideas. You know, we might not get everything that we want. Of course we won't if we're just on the on on the cross bench, but we'll get more if we have more Greens in the Parliament than we would, of course, without us. You know, it, under the Gillard government, the, the minority Parliament that she led, the Greens were in there, for instance, and we managed to negotiate to get dental care for children included under Medicare. This time, we want to complete that job. We want to get dental care properly covered by Medicare, mental health care as well, properly covered by Medicare. Those are the kinds of things that we can do. Where I'm not, I'm not going to stand, sit here and say, yes, if you, if you vote for me and I get elected as one of a handful of Greens on the crossbench, we're suddenly going to get our entire agenda implemented. No, I'm sorry, we're not. I wish we could, but we will get closer to it and we will be able to actually change some of those really problematic settings the more greens that we've got. And I think it's also worth remembering that for those of us who aren't willing to enter the political arena, that the, the saying, if you, want, if you want a politician to take something up, form a parade and they'll just make their way to the front, <laughs> is, is a, very, a very powerful saying. And if we in the community can do things like... Uh, here we go again, forming co-ops and, yeah. and using that as a way to actually get things done in, in, the, yeah. in the right way, then if that becomes a powerful movement, we get a serious voice too and it gives the people who are willing to go into parliament 
a, a bigger voice and and more of a uh, more strength. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So, I would yeah. see one of my roles as an MP to be there supporting the mass movements for change that are on the streets and encouraging people to get out on the streets all the time and demand the things that we, we know are necessary and then I can be a voice for those movements in the parliament. Yeah, so civil, civil, civil disobedience, non-violent civil disobedience mm. is what we're talking about. Right? Absolutely, that's part of it. It's not it's not the only thing, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, There's plenty of other ways for people to get involved, like you know, whether it's setting up co-ops or, or open farming or, or, or whatever it is, there, there's all sorts of ways of advocating which aren't necessarily civil disobedience, but of course civil disobedience is crucial as well. Mm. So I just want to touch on um, another listener question and we're going to tie it into a couple here because we're running out of time. Um, so we've got a listener, C.K. and Harrison, who's brought up the essay that was published on the Green Agenda when Carolyn Lakuta claimed that the party's policies, Green Party's policies, are no longer as idealistic as they once were and that they're um, now drawing closer to Labor and there was some concern that Greens and Labor were joined at the hip now with the ACT uh, government, you know, with the coalition of Greens and Labor, the <coughs> success of the Greens in the last ACT Legislative Assembly election. They want to know, um, is that true? Is, is that Greens and Labor now um, sort of like a, a cohesive um, joined, well, I, I can't think of the right word. An unofficial it, coalition. Yeah, an unofficial coalition, yeah. So, look, I am very pleased that as the executive director of the Green Institute, um, which I've just stepped down from for the campaign, I'm the publisher of Green Agenda, which published that essay from Caroline as part of a collection on Greens and government and what are the challenges, what are the benefits, um, how does it get harder. Um, I think it's really, really important that Caroline's views are published. I agree with some of what she wrote. I don't agree with all of it. And it's crucially important that as a party like the Greens, we are able to have these kinds of conversations in public. Um, I think Caroline has a very, very legitimate critique about the way the the cooperative government between Labor and the Greens has worked. She points to to a really important a really important point that if the Greens are truly to have negotiating power, it's really difficult that we only kind of are able to be in government with one of the other two parties. Um, That's a real problem for the Greens and it does make it sometimes harder for the Greens in the local assembly to negotiate because Labor knows that they can in some ways take the Greens' support for granted because we're not going to... We're not going to be delivering ministries to people like Mark Parton and Julia Jones, and you know it's just not it's not likely to happen. Um, so it's a difficult relationship. I I disagree with Caroline very strongly on the idea that the Greens' platform and policies have become less radical. In fact, I think that the 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 platform that we took to the 2020 election in the ACT is the most radical platform that we've taken to an election in in living memory. And we did manage to get some fantastic things negotiated as part of the parliamentary and governing agreement um, with Labor um, after that election. I would also note that the, the platform that the Australian Greens are taking to the federal election is absolutely, without a doubt, the most radical platform we've ever taken to an election. And I think probably the most radical platform that we've seen in this country probably since the 1970s of any political party. Um, so I disagree with Caroline that our platform has become less radical. I agree with her that the, re- the governing relationship between Labor and the Greens is a very, very difficult one, even though it is cooperative partly because it is so cooperative. In fact, the Greens end up having to agree with stuff and ending up having to support stuff and wear stuff that we disagree with as a party. Um, 
That's what cooperative government is. It's difficult. It's hard. Um, I so I think Caroline's critique is crucial that we that we publish that and we hear it, um, and I think it will be a very different relationship at a federal level if the Greens manage to get into balance of power with the Labor Party, um, because as I say, the Greens platform this time has been is extremely. Um, strong and radical, and Labor's platform is probably one of the weakest that they've ever taken. Mm. So it would be a difficult negotiating situation and a difficult relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, we're just about out of time there, Tim. So quickly, if people want to get in touch with you, volunteer, donate, mm. host a yard sign, where should they go? Absolutely. Um, one of the easiest is to pop into our office, 2 slash 18 Lonsdale Street, Braddon, right next to the Rainbow Roundabout. You might have seen it already. Or you can email me, tim.hollow, that's H-O-L-L-O, tim.hollow at act.greens.org.au and um, and lots of people are, and I look forward to hearing you. And 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 as Alicia said, I'll be out on the streets as well um, at stalls, door knocking um, a heap for the next month. So I look forward to meeting lots of you. Fantastic! So thank you for joining us this morning, Tim. Sorry we didn't have more time. No, that was um, heaps. Thank that you so is, much. Um, Greens candidate for Canberra, Tim Hollow. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au. That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U. Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.